Welcome to Idol Weekend. I'm Danielle Riando, and I'm here with my co-host Rob Zachney to wind down another week. So Rob, what have you been up to this week? Uh, well, aside from trying to deal with a bizarre muggy heat wave oh, man. that has struck Boston and made just like <laughs> my apartment unbearable. Yeah, it's like 75 degrees right now, like at night in New yeah. York. Yeah, we had like two gorgeous days of spring, and now it's just like classically crummy, like late spring, early summer, like <laughs> yeah. uh, East Coast Gloomy. weather, and I hate it. <laughs> yeah, it's not the best weather we get around here. It's a, it's just sort of like being in, you know, a giant's, like a really, you know, hairy giant's bathtub or something. That's sort of how I think of it. Yeah, it de- definitely. <laughs> it, it, the entire world feels like you've you've been the last person to use the shower. That yeah. morning, that's kind yeah. of how how the entire world feels right now. But beyond that, uh, I've been playing. I've been playing a few games. Uh, okay. For one, this this week, I um, and I'll just touch on this very briefly. I was playing Rust, uh, weirdly enough, for for a rock paper shotgun, taking a look at uh, how that game has sort of evolved. And you know, the weird thing is, I think Rust is one of those games that there's so much goofiness in it uh, <laughs> that it promotes like a certain type of of coverage i think sure that makes it really easy to dismiss what rust is doing yeah i mean i think that's certainly right i mean everybody's sort of you know oh the big penis size thing it was like all anybody talked about when it came to rust for a long time so yeah yeah exactly it's it's the whole like yeah it's the game with it's the game with the dongs in it yeah (laughs) uh and the the truth is it's it's a much more interesting uh survival game than that and and you know at this point for me to even be remotely interested in a game like this uh, in the era of the wilderness survival sim uh, <laughs> says quite a bit, but there's, there's a weird, like surreal beauty uh, to rust that I think it, it sort of speaks to those um, environmental issues we were talking about the other week, right? That yeah. like in rust, you are literally sort of dropped without pretense into this really strange and, and alien feeling world. Like it sort of feels like a survival game set in the world of like, everybody's gone to the rapture. Huh, yeah. Um after after the end of that game. Like it's all beautiful countryside countryside and like run down decayed industry. Uh and then occasionally for no good reason, you're like hunted by military attack helicopters and military <laughs> transports like fly overhead and drop supplies in, which is all very hunger games. Yeah. Uh but yeah, it's you know, I'm I am I am so torn about a game like this, because on the one hand when I when I, when I've gotten into grooves with that game, it it feels it feels really good because like you're you're going out like slowly you become like the master hunter and stalker and craftsman. So you go out there and you know you 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 gather raw materials from the from the wilderness and then you run back to your lair and build even better equipment and now you're even more capable and potent and you go back out into the world and so on and so forth it 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 feels that's a really satisfying loop in that game but then on the other hand the the game's fundamental trick is that all that progress will be wiped away at will almost at random yeah right yeah. like anyone can gank you um you can even get killed while you're offline. Oh, that's yeah. Yeah. That sucks. <laughs> yeah, it is. And there are ways you can mitigate it. There are ways you can, you know, you should, you should like hot, like sort of sleep in sheltered areas, uh, build like, you know, sort of lock yourself into a highly secure fortress if you can. Uh, and that certainly improves your odds of sort of surviving time offline. But ultimately this is a game that kind of punishes you for being away from, for a couple days. <laughs> uh, but 
it, yeah, I'm, I've ended up in this weird place where like it's when that happens, it's inordinately frustrating. I'm like, I'm not going back through all this this again. I'm just not going to do it. I, yeah. That's it. I'm quit. Russ, Russ can go to hell. <laughs> and then I install it, and then like the next day, I'm like, boy, I could really go for some rust. I'd be really, <laughs> be really good if I. I bet if I build a fortress that's even like bigger and more and more secure, uh, it'll be different this time. <laughs> uh, that's that's one thing I've been playing lately. Yeah. The other thing is that I finally, finally went back to Alien Isolation. Oh, my God. Okay, I am really excited to hear about this, because as you and everybody on the planet knows, that was my favorite game of 2014. Yeah, so we're going to have to talk about that. <laughs> yeah, I, there's a reason probably why I'm the only one who thinks that. But yes, go do go on. <sighs> so... <laughs> The real like I, I went back to this and I was shocked to realize I, the last time I, I had accessed that install was in October. Um, I was sort of floored that I, I've basically <laughs> been on hiatus from this game for like six months. Wow. <laughs> yeah. um, but the thing is, this is a game that I so badly want to love, Danielle. Like, and yeah. I was excited to go back into it. I was like, man, I could really go for just having the living bejesus scared out of me. <laughs> In on board the uh, on on board the the space station Sevastopol Sevastopol station yeah exactly Um, and being hunted by the xenomorph and and dealing with all that that sounds fantastic and and there's so much in that game I've really gotten into the first two Alien movies of late Um, I I I think those are just fantastic films I just love the I, I love the the aesthetic of that world that it's all this like the the super it's this vision of of what like people in the 1980s thought a really like roughneck future would look like like yeah. this is what heavy industry would look like in like three centuries and I and I love that right I, I love the, the the VHS quality displays uh, the the clunky machinery and computer equipment it's it's all fantastic. But the problem is, the alien is just starting to piss me off. <laughs> uh, Frankie does that, yeah. Oh, that's right. You call you you call him Frankie. Yes. Well, it was a it was sort of a survival tactic for me. Um, but yes, I, I I do call him Frankie. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I can understand the survival tactic, but like. I mean, did you did you feel some of that? Because because here's here's the issue. On the one hand, like I like that this thing is hunting me. And it, it hunts in a sort of, well, it doesn't hunt in a believable fashion, right? Like, it, it sort of comes out, it walks around, then goes back up into the rafters and comes out somewhere else, right? So yeah. it's this constant uh, it's, it's this constant rhythm of go out, explore, and then run to a closet, hide <laughs> for a minute, yes, and then go back out and explore some more. That's accurate, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and Danielle, I just want to explore. I just want I to explore with the threat of the alien. The, I, the and that's the thing, right? It's like Ripley didn't spend all of Alien being hunted by the alien. She was hunted by the alien for like two minutes out of that entire movie. <laughs> like that is that is the amount of time she was actually dealing with the with the alien. The rest of it, she's dealing with two things: the thought of the alien, and the fact that uh, Mother and the android aboard the ship are basically their their cruel, uncaring gods. Yes. So that's that's kind of the alien experience, but then alien isolation is like, what if we just have you pestered by this thing constantly <laughs> for thirty hours? <laughs> okay, yeah, uh, all right. Well, honestly, 
I there there's a part of me that sort of definitely understands why other people are not as enamored with this game as I am. Um, and it's not just the environmental storytelling stuff, which of course is my f- probably my favorite part of that game. And they, they if you're playing on PC, there is a mod to get rid of the alien, Rob. I don't know if you if you knew that, but you can play the whole thing with no alien now if you you know get the mod. But anyway, so much of why I love that game has to do with with how much I sort of felt good about myself for playing it, which is very weird, I know, and and kind of a difficult thing to unpack. But it felt like this entire game is what it's like to have a panic attack. Like it's it's sort of like. Every moment you're being hunted, you actually really feel like you're being hunted. And yes, yes, that's sort of annoying in a lot of ways. But for me, I got really, really into role playing it as if it were sort of really happening to me. And I got sort of into the whole idea of you just have to sort of silently walk a lot of times. You can't run. And if you're crouching, you're sort of going too slow. So you have to just manage every single one of these encounters. And they're countless. They just keep happening and keep happening. And they're unfair. And sometimes they suck. But it's exactly like sort of living with an anxiety disorder. And some part of me felt so vindicated by playing this game and sort of surviving this game, I suppose, in a lot of ways that the other things that sort of, you know, lapped onto that, like all the cool, you know, sort of environmental detail, all the sort of depressed, you know, interesting industrial sort of ideas that were going on here were all really window dressing for me. But I think the thing that really, really made me love it instead of just sort of liking it was that, that aspect of like, you know, you just have to survive. You just have to survive. You just have to survive. Sometimes it sucks, but you just have to survive. And it's like, there, there it is. There's sort of the experience of, of sort of having this, uh, you know, this illness in, in video game form. Nothing has ever sort of gotten that close to what it feels like for me anyway, personally. I'm, I'm, I'm sympathetic to that. Yeah. But the thing is, like, at least, like, for for me, it feels like you you it, it feels like when you were trying to manage that condition in moments of absolute crisis. Yes, like it is. It is your anxiety panic disorder at the moments it's at a ten, right? Yeah. Yes. And that is an incredibly grueling place to be. That's why. I mean that. That's why the disorder isn't as. <laughs> it isn't always isn't always as debilitating as it could be full time because like eventually you just crash from the exhaustion right, right. like usually yeah. like usually eventually you're at that fever pitch and then finally like the wave crashes down and you feel like normal and human for <laughs> depending on how you're doing yeah. uh, maybe a few <laughs> hours maybe a few days maybe a few weeks yeah uh, but but alien is like oh there is no relief from that until you get out of this freaking level um and <laughs> sure. in the meantime you're just going to have to keep doing those i mean the I, the analogy is perfect because the, the like the core mechanic of the game is coping <laughs> mechanisms yeah like it's oh shit the aliens the here's the alien i better run into the safe secure closet for two three minutes and just pray it doesn't like find me and let it breathe on me and all that other good stuff. Yeah. <laughs> right. But then but but then at the same time like I am being held back from like from experiencing the world, right? And and even to an extent experiencing what I I sort of feel is like the ideal alien experience, right? <laughs> Where this is a monster that it's 
its omnipresence eventually makes it feel annoying <laughs> rather than terrifying. Sure. And, yeah. and yet it is, and yet it is still fundamentally, undeniably scary because that's why I'm having, having trouble playing for long, right? Because like once I like after I die, I'm like, oh god, I hate the alien. And then I get <laughs> back into the, I start hoping I'm gonna survive again, right? Like I've, oh, but I'm on a really good run here. I've been been doing stuff for about ten minutes. I really hope I can make it back to a save point before that thing drops out of a vent and kills me again. Of course. Um, but then there's also all those moments where just like. You just die for no damn good reason. Like, um, I get a key card and unlock a new section of the ship, and the door opens, and I'm stuck in the door unlocking animation. And you know, Ripley has to like step back and then step through the doorway <laughs> to complete the animation. And the freaking alien is coming around the corner, and I'm like, please let me out of this animation. I can't. Like, this is not a good place to be. <laughs> and no, no, Ripley just walks forward, and then it's like, you know, kill surprise the alien. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and then you die. And that stuff just, oh, God, it exhausts me. And I'm like, oh, I don't want to play any more of this game. But then I totally want to play more of that game. Yes. Yeah. It, it's very much, um, it's the kind of fun that's not really fun in a lot of ways. At least large portions of that game for me were a lot of that. We're, we're just sort of freaking out and being mad and freaking out and being mad and swearing at the alien a lot and you're not quite. Um, wh- where are you in the game again? Because I, I was under the impression you're like halfway ish. Uh, I doubt through. I'm halfway. Maybe I'm halfway. Um, so I'm in the second part of the medical deck. Oh, um, okay, okay. You're <laughs> you're in like the first tenth of the game, actually. Okay. Um, yeah, it, it's a really long game. Um, it's it's it feels a bit like over long. for a while. Yeah, I actually, I was stuck there as well. I, I don't love that section because it's, uh yeah, it's very, I, I think it, that it, part drags more than it needs to. It's um, been like, a, yeah, because I would say I've been, I've been hunted by the alien pretty much nonstop since getting down there. Like, and the other thing is there's, there's like always some new bogus quest you've got to deal with. Like, yeah. first there's that like, obviously Get the three medicines doctor. or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. you got to do all that crap for him. And then it's classic System Shock 2. You know you're never going to meet this character. You know he's going to get killed in front of you before <laughs> anything ever happens. And that's exactly what happens. Yep. And then the alien resumes stalking you through like every possible corner of the level. Um, and so that, that part is starting to drag me down a little bit. Yeah, that part is is pretty frustrating. There are parts towards the end of the game that that reach peak frustration that I... You know, I, I was very excited to interview the folks who made this game a couple of times actually over the last couple of years and at one point I I told them you know like clearly you know how much I I adore your game but why the hell did you put x y and z in the game um do you do you care if you're spoiled I know we probably are okay with I don't care okay and and then in this point we can say oh right okay if you care about spoilers turn off your headphones for a moment there's more than one xenomorph on the ship and they're breeding, and the eggs hatch and immediately kill you if you don't sort of kill the the face hugger immediately. You know, if you don't like see it or hear it skittering towards you. And there's a portion, there's like a corridor towards the end of the game where there's like six of these things, and you there the there are two aliens hunting you, and there are like six of these things, and it's just like oh that sounds really awful. yeah it it's really annoying and totally unnecessary in terms of the you know the vibe of like the lone person on the ship being hunted by the lone alien you know basically um 
it, it did not ruin the experience for me, but it was incredibly frustrating and annoying. And uh, yeah, I mean, honestly, I think there are a lot of flaws to this game. I think they made something really brilliant with the AI in, in that it's something that actually feels like it's stalking you and hunting you, yeah. which, you know, most game AI just sort of feels like, okay, there's a thing here and it has, you know, eight behaviors or whatever. Yeah. And those are the eight behaviors, and they're always, almost always easy to kind of figure out. But this thing just really actually feels like it hates you, and it's smarter than the game itself in certain ways. It's smarter than the game's environments in certain ways. And it feels genuinely unfair in a lot of ways that sort of make it feel like being hunted because it's, you know, a, a pretty unfair thing to have happen to you in uh, life. <laughs> yeah. Hunted. I, I definitely get what you mean about it being like sort of too clever for the game because yeah. like really good stealth games require constructing the illusion that you're up against capable enemies right yeah. but really you're dealing with, with a lot of guards that have like complete tunnel vision yeah um you know they can and and they sort of stare for long intervals straight ahead and then they rotate like clockwork to another direction and like you that's how you learn the systems and 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 survive um and this game almost feels like a punishment for anyone who wanted a more a worthier <laughs> opponent in the stealth game. Uh, but yeah, it just seems like the the aliens' uh, hunting routines are really difficult to design around because the moment it's introduced into an environment, um, it dominates that environment and makes it a place that's completely inhospitable to exploration, which is kind of half the reason you're playing a game like this, right? You're trying yeah. to unravel the mystery of of how it all went bad uh, on this on this space station but it's tough to enjoy that mystery when like you can i think you can even be killed while you're on a terminal yeah um, you can you can I'm certainly sure. be cornered while you're on a terminal <laughs> yeah I, I think you can be killed basically at any point yeah. um in this game for sure does does it feel like so especially with that like end game difficulty stuff and the fact yeah. that I'm in this like endless first section slog, uh, <laughs> does it feel almost like there was the idea for a great game here, but then they had to make like a twelve or thirteen hour like FPS experience? I mean, it's it's honestly like a thirty hour FPS experience. Um, oh, it's wait, much whoa, longer. Whoa. Oh yeah. god. Yeah. Oh god. Okay, it's it's actually like twenty five, but I am the kind of person who I needed to you know look up every detail and do every last thing because that's what i enjoy doing um but yeah yeah it's it's a really really long game um wow and yes i agree i think there's like a like brilliant absolute masterpiece of a 10-hour game in alien isolation but it's it is spread over perhaps too much time now there are different sections of the game where you're doing different things and i appreciated that and there there are portions of this game also that are, you know, yes, they're kind of fan service, but they're also, they had me jaw on the floor. You know, there's a section where you are actually going through as uh, the people who found uh, the alien originally before the, you know, like finding where the Nostromo was and, and not oh, having known badass. what happened to the Nostromo. Oh, and it's amazing. It's it's just incredible. So uh, there are portions of this game that are just like, they hit you right there and it's like, oh my God this is alien. They get it. They got it. Oh my God. Nobody else has ever gotten this before. This is wonderful and amazing and a masterpiece. And that's what has stayed with me, even though I certainly experienced a lot of the frustration that you're feeling right now um, as well. And it's, ugh, God, it's, 
you know, it, it really is. I, I keep sort of coming back to this idea that the alien is as overpowered in this game as the average FPS player is in any other FPS over any other sort of yeah. enemy. But there, the whole, you know, position swap has happened where you're just the sort of random guard number seven. Only you just happen to be smarter than most random guards, you know, that sort of thing. Um, which is cruel, but I like it. <laughs> does Does the difficulty setting mitigate it at all? Because, like... I think I'm right now I'm playing it on the recommended settings, whatever mm-hmm. they're like, this is the, that might actually be hard. It might have been the game steering me toward hard and being like, this yeah. is the way it's meant to be played. And I'm like, I'm wondering if that can be mitigated uh, where I'm just not quite as, <laughs> not quite yeah. as uh, harried by the alien. Uh, as I, I Yeah, I have no qualms whatsoever about the fact that I played large portions of this game on easy. Because I, the, the alien will kill you no matter what. It's really more sort of the other enemies that are mm. made less of a challenge um, on easy. And uh, you do actually get something that does help a little bit with the alien. You do get a flamethrower sort of part of the way through the game. So you can encounter the alien once with sort of a full tank of fuel, you know, hit it with the with the flamethrower. If you're quick enough, they'll run away, actually. So you do get sort of a second chance mechanic. Well, that works once? Uh, it works once on a full tank. Uh, actually, no, it works twice on a full tank, but then the second sort of, uh, the second dose of fire, you need to sort of get more oil. It's a very, very limited weapon. It's not actually, you know, gonna, you know, right. completely make you overpower the alien. It's just, it gives you another chance in case you get caught, basically, uh, which is very, very helpful, actually. And if they had put that a little earlier in, that might have helped with some there's, of the pacing there, issues. There's a lot of things that, like, just aren't, like, the, the whole, like, tutorial stealth section where you, you're in that huge lobby oh, with all the, the first people yeah. yeah yeah and if you don't like if you like try to stealth your way through that it's really freaking hard yes it um is. they yeah. will spot you and they will gun you down like at the drop of a dime and i'm like i don't know how this made it through playtesting oh um, man yeah but yeah like the, the way i did it, I, I completely cheesed it i ran straight through the room uh <laughs> at the start and then waited for them to come back and and take their positions again then i just walked out the door they came through uh, nice. But, but yes, yeah, so, I mean that's that's kind of where I'm at with this game. Is like I I think there's a brilliant uh, yeah, like you said, there's there's a brilliant gem of a game here that then they had to make into a big game to justify yeah. a premium price tag, and it feels like that happens a lot. Oh God, it does. It really does. And Rob, right now I'm playing something else that is like the definition of that. I think, um, and of course. This comes with the whole, you know, this is actually a game from 10 years ago. I'm playing uh, Zelda Twilight Princess right now, the HD remaster, remake, whatever, uh, re-release of Zelda Twilight Princess, which is, uh, it was a Wii launch title, so 2006. It was sort of the first game, uh, you know, the first Zelda game that had the, the motion controls and everything with the new Wii, you know, the brand new controls. Um, and this is a brilliant, brilliant gem of a, 30 or 40 hour game that is inside of a 60 hour game (laughs) and it is oh my god i i just have i have a lot of thoughts about this so like alien isolation in this way there is sort of this this core like the dungeons in this game are you know zelda gameplay you know you sort of have your overworld you have your little character encounters and you have your dungeons which are you know sort of half puzzle solving half combat and they're all these really you know the series is really well known for just having 
amazingly well-designed dungeons, these temples or dungeons, whatever you want to call them, uh, that are just very intricate and very fun to play. And there's always this wonderful sense of progression through them, uh, you know, even down to the little tingles and, and jingles and sort of sound effects that play when you get something right and you sort of solved a puzzle or you've, you know, cleared a room of enemies, that sort of thing. Um, there are like... I think 11 or 12 of these just amazing, wonderful, great dungeons in this game that really could have stood uh, completely on their own without uh, sort of all the other stuff in the game. And it still would have been a long, you know, 30, 35, maybe even 40 hour game just sort of with that. So the fact that this game is like 60 hours long is obscene and terrible, basically. I, um, I've been playing a lot of it, and uh, I've been streaming a lot of it, too, actually. And the game gets really bogged down, so the whole um, sort of twist for this one, there's, you know, a little twist in all of them, basically. The, uh, the twist in this one is that uh, Link gets transformed into sort of Wolf Link for portions of the game, and the combat's a little different when you're Wolf Link, and you can have, you know, different abilities and that sort of thing. Um, and all I can imagine is that the designers at Nintendo, you know, made these amazing dungeons, uh, which you mostly play as sort of the human Link. Um, they made these amazing dungeons and they made this cool wolf Link and added in all his abilities. And then they were like, oh, wait, we need to add in a whole bunch of stuff for you to do as wolf Link. So they added these awful, boring sort of fetch quests in, in the overworld around the dungeons oh. where you have to you have to hunt down and find these little light bugs. I don't even know what they're called. It doesn't matter. Um, it's just they're hidden all over the map and it's they're not fun. They're boring. You know, I sort of I was I was looking at the the game counter and you know from the moment you start until you're in the first dungeon is like a, it's like a solid two hours or so. But at least that is somewhat uh, tutorializing and sort of showing you things you'll actually need to learn. And then between the first dungeon and the second dungeon, there's another two hours and you've already learned everything at this point. In that two hours, you have to do another one of these fetch quests. You have to learn how to do this terrible, horrible, glitchy, jousting kind of minigame. You have to do a whole bunch of literally hurting enemies you have to do a bunch of learning how to do sumo wrestling like it's all this complete bullshit this just utter not fun bullshit for like two or three hours before you get to the next dungeon and then it's like oh good we can play the game again here in this you know really well designed fun dungeon so god i just ugh, it, it it pains me because I'm a, I'm a huge Zelda fan. I, I love the 3D Zelda games. Majora's Mask and Wind Waker are my absolute favorites. Um, but I really like Twilight Princess and I really liked Skyward Sword. I just couldn't finish Skyward Sword because I I could not get the, you know, the sort of Wii Motion Plus, whatever the hell, controls to actually work properly. I just kept dying and dying and dying. And Zelda games are not difficult to the point where you should be dying and dying and dying. It was just an issue for me. Um, so... It's sort of one of those things where it's like, I like this game so much. I think there's so much really wonderful stuff here. These dungeons are great. The boss fights are fun. You know, I I just get so angry that there's all of this padding and just total bullshit sort of farting on this wonderful, delicious cake, you know, of, of, uh, of a game. And the reason why this is frustrating on top of just sort of that on its face is that when Nintendo just re-released uh, Wind Waker HD, they trimmed out a whole bunch of the fat. They actually added a, a fast sail. So when you were sailing around the world, you could go much faster right off the bat. And they sort of cut down portions of, you know, sort of the only tedious portion of that game, in my opinion, 
the, the little Triforce quest at the end, which in my opinion was nowhere near as tedious as the stuff in Twilight Princess, but they still cut it out. So I don't know why they went in and did the, the chopping in, in one case and not the, in the much more egregious case, basically. Yeah, that's a weird editorial decision. Yeah. Um. So you, but do you, you genuinely feel like it's it's the Wolf Link thing, like that they had come up with a interesting series of mechanics, but no real game in which to use yeah. them. Yeah, I, I mean, it's just sort of a guess, but like you know, it, most of the dungeons, you know, later dungeons, you are sort of using uh, the the sort of switching mechanic a little bit, you know, switching between wolf and human or whatever. Uh, man, I don't know. He's an elf, a human. I don't know what's going on with it. Uh, but <laughs> but it's just in the early parts of the game, all you do is the wolf basically are these terrible fetch quests. It, and it's just not fun and not interesting. And I can't imagine why they would have put it in if it weren't for, oh, we need more to do with the wolf or, yeah. you know, and there are some portions of this that I can just tell were misguided sort of um, fun, cool ways to show off these motion controls uh, you know, like the sumo wrestling is a lot like that. I, it, nobody plays a Zelda game to do terrible, bad, you know, quick time event style sumo wrestling, but they sure thought it was a cool, you know, way to highlight that new motion control. So, well, so, so this it's is, in. <laughs> you know, that's that's another thing. Like a lot of times, uh, it, it feels like games are padded out, but I'm not actually sure that's that's correct, right? Because I think yeah. the, way, the way a lot of games end up a lot of fat on them. It, stuff wasn't cut that should have been. Yes. Uh, because in general, it, it seems like in development, the, the process is a game starts big and then slowly gets winnowed down as decisions are made and then cuts are made. Uh, but the but I think where, where you, you see a lot of trouble begin to arise is, um, you know, it, it always sounded to me like creating any kind of finished content for a game is enormously expensive. Yes. Or, or even certainly. halfway finished content for a game when you've gone beyond gray boxing uh, for for level designs and, and you've got and you and you've designed mechanics and and you you've gone through um, you know testing for certain areas. It seems like at that point the train is very hard to slow down in <laughs> order to like keep it from running into the release version. Um, <laughs> And that's that's how it feels a lot of times is like stuff. It, it often feels like stuff has been left in two games, yeah, and it, it really shouldn't have been. But once there's been all that investment in it, who's gonna who's gonna say no to a bigger game? Who wouldn't want more stuff? And and you can see there is there there are people who who really do want bigger games, uh, and you know are, are interested in in sort of the 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 bang for the gaming buck, but. At the same time, when you look at the like completion rates on games, yeah. clearly, <laughs> clearly the, <laughs> the overwhelming trend is to give players way too much of good, mediocre, and not so good things. Yes, certainly, and and it's particularly interesting in this case to play this game, you know, from two thousand six that just has all those early two thousands sort of design decisions in it. You know, like. Oh, quick time events were pretty big, so there's there's a few of those, and it's like really Zelda's not you know the type of game where where people play it for this, but it it just feels like oh well, throw it all in. It, it, this game in particular feels like the Zelda with the least editing, um, in in so many ways. So I think you're completely right about that, and I think this game in particular was just such a man, such a poster child for that phenomenon. It famously you know went on so long, the development went on so long that it became a Wii 
launch game. It, it wasn't originally going to be. It was supposed to be a GameCube game, and it was also a GameCube uh, release. But it was, it you know, clearly a lot of the stuff was shoehorned in to make it. Oh, it's 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 good for the Wii. Now we've got this these cool motion controls. Uh, so yeah, it's very. It's very interesting. I'm still going to play the crap out of it. I still love this game. I just, God, I just really wish Nintendo had, you know, in 2016 or 2015, whenever, when they were, they were you know, fully preparing this uh, for release, uh, if they had just taken the surgeon scissors and just, you know, cut out some of the crap that, you know, people have been very vocal about it. I'm certainly not the only person who thinks there's way too much, you know, sort of bullshit in this game. <laughs> So. Well, I mean, this is—I mean, this is life in the era of content, right? Yeah. Where things exist, like things exist to like create stuff to do on a platform, and that was the description for ninety percent of all Wii games. Yeah, uh, it was just like, oh man, we—I guess we got to do something with this. We like. We can't all be Wii Sports. <laughs> what else can we do with this? Uh, and yeah. that drove a lot of decisions. Oh, yeah, Zelda Sumo. Um, yeah. That yeah. was a good one. <laughs> um, the, the 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 like things like the the six axis controls for oh. for the PlayStation, which you know occasionally it's a it's a nifty way to throw a grenade, I guess, but it's usually yeah. not usually not that amazing. Um, but yeah, there, there's this there there is this this feeling I get sometimes that like because because the word we use for a lot of stuff is content because everything is sort of viewed through this lens of just just create stuff for the thing to get attention for a little while right yeah. and i i think it starts to infect other aspects of a game and sometimes is really in and sometimes is really encouraged in some negative ways like how many times and this is a game i love but how many how many stories did you read about the witcher 3 and how like <laughs> just sheer numbers thrown at you about how ridiculously long the game was going to be and yes. like articles built around a quote that the developer gave like saying oh there's there's enough stuff here for three months of of gameplay yeah you know, th things like that again and again it's this it, it, it's like this. It's it's this uh, like almost like pissing contest about how much stuff can be be crammed into a game with with very little thought as to whether or not that's that's ultimately ultimately a good thing. Yeah. Um, and I I think it it affects a lot of games, uh, both big and small, kind of negatively. I truly wish that the sort of standard length for a single player game was three to five hours. And anything sort of above and below that was was you know oh okay it's it's that's longer than usual or that's shorter than usual, um, just as a you know selfish person who has a busy life and I you know I certainly don't think I'm alone in this either. I think a lot of people would prefer uh, you know shorter, more contained experiences. And, and of course we we have these now. We have plenty of smaller games, but but yeah, I, I think some of this is our fault, Rob. As as games media people that you know maybe not you and me specifically but you know people in our profession i suppose who do that you know we we are absolutely um party to sort of the the hype cycle and we have to be and and because of our jobs because this is what people want to read and it sort of creates this cycle of hype and this cycle of oh this is longer this is bigger better more badass whatever that quote is i probably got it wrong but yeah. you know that that whole idea driving so much of game dev that 
is clearly unsustainable and clearly not good for a lot of games, not good for a lot of kinds of games either. So, well, yeah, <laughs> I think it's a, it's it's a different like so uh, like our kind is impossible to satisfy though. Like, yeah, you know, <laughs> it's easy to say I wish I wish the standard length for for a game was was three to five hours. Except that's that's nothing. That's that's like that's in in three hours you'll figure out how to play the game. Uh, yeah, I so I, 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 I don't know. I, I'm not sure if I, I go that far, but I think it's an easy thing for people who play a lot of games or, or work in, in games media start thinking, which is why aren't games designed for people like me? Sure. Um, and the answer is because we're, <laughs> we're an incredibly small subset of, uh, of gamers as a whole. And I think most people, you know, what's that, what's that quote like? You don't buy books. You bu- you buy the time to read the books. Uh, sure, um, sure. That that yeah. whole that whole thought that that whole theory of consumption, right? That that you know you you get these recreational products uh, not so you can use them, but so you can sort of daydream about the day you'll be able to use them. Sure, uh, sure. And I think that's what I think that's what a lot of games are selling is this idea that man, you have this game now. And oh, just think about just think all the good times you're gonna have. That's 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 twenty or thirty just delightful hours that you're gonna be able to experience. <laughs> and it doesn't matter whether or not you do. What matters is that you can start playing it and you can check that little progress bar and it's like you're only three percent of the way through. And oh boy, isn't that isn't that a relaxing feeling? Because like <laughs> just think, just think of the bounty that's still that's still laid out before you. And you, you know, you probably won't notice when you get bored and wander off. Right. Yeah. It's it's people who have a weird compulsion to finish things either out of like professional obligation or just because you're dumb enough to care about <laughs> stories and games like me uh, that, you know, then you start to like view that progress bar as the real enemy. Like, why? Why did this stuff exist? Yeah. Um, and that. Yeah, it's 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 a difficult thing because I understand like I understand who who this is serving and, and who's interested in it. Um, but at the same time, like. I, I I do sometimes worry if games a lot of games wouldn't be better served overall if it was a slightly more all killer no filler experience because uh, yes. that stuff that stuff people talk about right whereas I think a lot of these games that you and I have talked about what people heard the most about like Alien Isolation is what a pain in the ass it was to finish sure, sure. yeah. And it is. <laughs> it's not wrong, you know. And and what people talk about with Twilight Princess is, is is also, you know, what forty hours of great game, twenty hours of crap. You know, it's yeah. it's it's just such a hard proposition to, you know, to think about recommending certain experiences to to other friends, especially, you know, I mean, we're all grown ups. We all have jobs. Many of my friends have kids, and you know, you're just on such a limited time for for leisure time that it's like Man, I, I need that all killer, no filler. That's that's what I need in my life, you know. And I think that's what a lot of people that I know need in their lives. But it it is a fair point that you know some people they want to feel that way. They want to feel like, oh, I've got these thirty hours, and you know, they play three, and and that was worth it to them. Yeah, I have no judgments <laughs> for that, not at all. Well, I think it's probably time to to move on to our weekend correspondence now that we've. We've padded out our own podcast, Rob. <laughs> so uh, let's see. Our first letter comes from Corey Undeadpool on the forums. He says, or they say, hey there, Weekendites. There comes a time in a great many strategy games, Advance Wars and Fire Emblem spring to mind, where the games start feeling less to me like strategy games and more like puzzle games with one singular correct way to play a given scenario. 
Someone with a general dislike of puzzle games and a love of turn-based strategy, this always disappoints me as I almost always uh, simply look up a walkthrough to get the right way after several frustrating failures. Have you found this to be true, or am I just trying to explain away a lack of, of uh, skill on my part? If so, how do you work through it? P.S. Danielle, please try getting into fighting games, at least Street Fighter V. As a boxer, I think you'd love them because, like Dark Souls, your need for spatial awareness would likely come in very handy. Wow. Um, <laughs> well, I'll, I'll speak to that second part uh, because I, I am probably not great at uh, doing games the right way, as we sort of discussed previously. But yeah, I actually just downloaded Street Fighter V and I plan to uh, actually try it out a little bit. And I also just started uh, boxing again literally yesterday uh, as of this recording. So both of those things are, are strong in my mind and I will actually give it a shot because a few people have told me that, that I should, I should try fighting games uh, at least, at least to give it a shot, I suppose. So I, I feel like Corey has to be like a, a three moves ahead ringer uh, writing in for this. Cause this <laughs> is a theme that we return to a lot sure. and it's a difficult <laughs> thing to solve because anytime you're making a game, Anytime you're making a game that's specifically about scenarios, uh, which used to be the majority of like war games and strategy games you'd, you'd come across, uh, is they, they would be these, these sort of set-piece encounters that you'd have to learn how to beat them. And the problem is scenario design is a really difficult thing to, to do right sure. without falling into traps where... Uh, you know, without falling into traps where you're, you're going to create situations with only one real solution and i think that's exacerbated by the fact that um there is a tendency like people always want games to be harder right like and this is kind of universal but i think it's particularly bad uh particularly particularly salient in in a lot of a lot of strategy games that if you're playing them uh you should really have to work for those victories <laughs> and if you introduce things to force players to get uh you know, sort of like strategy games, war games use the uh, like Super Meat Boy approach all the time, which is like, yeah, there's the okay victory, but then there's the the real uh, the real victory you're supposed to get, <laughs> and that real victory is is often you know often requires like some serious study uh, for you to figure out how to achieve all the objectives in the given time, and at that point, what you're doing is sort of recreating the, the scenario designer's thinking. And that is a difficult thing to get around. Now, with a game like XCOM 2, I, I think the puzzle elements are there in part because um, the way the enemies are designed force you to sort of learn and adapt to their behaviors. But I don't think those those missions are are puzzles, really. It's just you have to sort of learn new skills to address uh, the type of enemies that are being thrown at you. So I, I, I give, you know, XCOM 2 is kind of a good example of a game that managed to be very difficult without resorting to that uh to the, to that puzzle uh motif but most most war games i think do really struggle with this uh, and i think it goes back to one of the sort of foundational uh works of, of war gaming which is panzer general uh mm -hmm. which sort of forced you to repeat scenarios again and again and again uh and also hit a lot of things from you that you could only discover through failure and then eventually you'd be able to beat it. And that was a lot of fun in like 1995 <laughs> when it was, you know, when it was the only game in town kind of. Yeah. Uh, but at this point you play a game like that and it's just, it's absolutely infuriating. And it's, it's very difficult to, to find a way around that in games that are, 
uh, sort of operating by scenarios. Mm-hmm. I mean, as far as getting through it, I, I think for, for me, the tell is like when when I look up a like if I can't make any progress until I've looked up sort of the solution to these things, then I'm pretty much done. Right. Yeah. If if the game or if I can beat scenarios, but the cumulative effect of sort of mediocre results on missions uh, starts to make progress impossible, then again, I'm I'm probably done. So that's that's kind of my litmus test, right? Is that I have no problem with there being like sort of a secret, hidden, like awesome person solution. <laughs> but when that is sort of demanded to make progress, then then I'm then I'm kind of through with the game. Sure. Uh, so our next email comes from uh, Zoe or or Zoe. Uh, hey, weekenders! In keeping with last weekend's discussion on the ways in which gaming's escapist tendencies can be used to mitigate physical and emotional pain, I wanted to share a bit of my experience with the way that I feel games are uniquely equipped to help cope with a particular kind of suffering, gender dysphoria, and more generally, the dissociation from one's identity that can come up as a result. I feel I can retrospectively apply a filter of general identity escapism of sorts to my past gaming behaviors. Though I didn't have a conscious idea of the cause, there was always a sense of pervasive wrongness to the experience of being the quote-unquote real me that I felt was often alleviated during my time inhabiting the characters of virtual world. To pose a question in that regard, are there any ways in which your gaming habits have put certain aspects of your personality into relief or surfaced parts of your identity that you hadn't quite examined fully? Or do you ever feel like using the crutch of gaming's escapism has prevented you from growing as a person on occasion because you weren't forced to confront certain parts of yourself? Oh, wow. Um, immediately sort of coming to mind, uh, and first, thank you, Zoe, for uh, you know sharing that with us. Um, there are definitely some portions of, of playing games, like p- playing characters that are, are women characters who have sort of masculine traits that I certainly sort of hid behind when I was a little bit, um, you know, like there, there are portions of sort of my own uh, feelings of, of sort of like being more comfortable being like a woman with muscles, a woman who, you know, sort of can fight and, and kick ass and all that other good stuff that that I've actually found really helpful and thought was, was really cool and sort of helped me uh, feel comfortable and feel more comfortable kind of being myself as well in certain ways that this is, you know, not uh, that, that being sort of a, you know, a strong woman or, you know, sort of a, you know, combat oriented woman or a woman who's a soldier don't mean not being a woman anymore. Like that's a, a lot of games have sort of made me feel that way and, and comfortable in that way. And I suppose I have, um, there are ways, actually, uh, the second part of the question that I've been worried uh, that uh, gaming has prevented my growth as a person in certain ways. And I I wonder uh, at times is sort of the ability to kind of play as a heroic goody two-shoes kind of person who saves the world has kept me from doing more, uh, you know, more volunteering or, or focusing more on sort of my my medical training or, or sort of other ways that I could actually be a, a useful <laughs> sort of human being in the actual world, uh, satisfying some of those feelings, uh, especially when I was younger. I, I like to think I do. Uh, I like to think that I, I can be helpful now as a human being in the world who volunteers and so on and so forth. But I also think 
that uh, perhaps if I had come across some of the feelings that I have now about being somebody who's very interested in, in, in doing sort of nonprofit or volunteer medical work, uh, maybe it would have been cool for me to have actually pursued that when I was younger and not, you know, as a 32 year old who already has a career and, and sort of other things going on. So yeah, I, I, I do wonder if, if playing hero has made me less of a, of a heroic person in real life sometimes. Yeah. But Danielle, I've known you for longer than <laughs> the last couple of years. And yes. in the entire time I've known you, you've always been either volunteering or working at nonprofits or working as an educator or, I kind of, I kind of like, I'm kind of sitting here like wondering like what exactly <laughs> gaming was keeping you from doing. Uh, like, I don't know. I hear that. And I'm, I'm kind of like, yeah, I suppose, Danielle, I suppose if you'd like stop doing anything but volunteer work <laughs> and, and medical training, you, you could have done more. But I don't know, man. I kind of, well, I I kind of I feel like you, your, your track record on that, I feel like you're pretty far under par uh, when, it, when it comes to being a useful and helpful member of society. Well, thank you. I, I suppose I mean more, you know, when I was younger and sort of considering my career that I could have done a little bit more then as opposed to just sort of playing games all day i guess i'm thinking about when i was in college and i you know i played sports and i and i did some things but i, I wasn't uh you know i was more interested in playing games than than doing things outside of of that i suppose i don't know maybe when i was younger maybe <laughs> maybe i'm okay this is always something feel, i'm gonna face I feel, you know? I, I feel like your deathbed is going to be the most ridiculous like version <laughs> of the end of schindler's list that has ever been right like, bring out like ds titles and be like think, exactly. of, think of the people i could have saved <laughs> look at look at it's it's wind it's 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 twilight princess <laughs> i could have exactly. been a doctor i could have been a doctor if i wasn't finding all these light bugs as a wolf <laughs> oh uh, goodness to you know for my part um i would say one thing that I, I, I actually sort of vividly remember uh, a game putting into sharp relief was uh, there is a scenario in the, or the original The Operational Art of War uh, called, uh, it's, it's the, the Italy campaign, the Italian campaign uh, in World War II. It's a huge scenario. Uh, it's, it's like 60, 70 turns, maybe 80, and it covers the wow. entire like slog of the Allies uh, up the Italian peninsula against uh, German and Italian resistance. And the, re and the reason I bring this up is because that scenario starts basically with the Allies completely bottlenecked. Like there's all these, there's all these different landings the Allies made uh, around Italy, and then really quickly the Germans bottled them, bottled them up completely. And mm -hmm. uh, force them to wage these really brutal attrition campaigns uh, to to break out of it. And so, the first like twenty or thirty turns, I'm just trying to figure out like how do I take these four or five beachheads, break out of them, link up, and then sprint north. Like, but how? But basically, how do I break out of this position? Yeah. And it was really it required a lot of like examining of the position. And a lot of planning, uh, a lot of a lot of thinking about like you know thinking a few moves ahead, like what what each turn, uh, what would happen to what would have to happen each turn for me to for me to stage the breakout, who I'd hold in reserve, uh, when reinforcements would be showing up. And it was a really difficult uh, tactical operational problem. And when I finally like went ahead with my plan, 
it worked beautifully. Um, like it started slowly, but it gained momentum and the German positions like eroded on clockwork, completely broke out of the position. And suddenly I had, you know, the entire like heartland of Italy ahead of me. And it was like, what can you know now there was nothing stopping me from running my armies up and, uh, and, and, and taking all the objectives. And I was completely paralyzed when that happened. Uh, because suddenly I, I had been good at solving the problem that was set before me. Uh, I'd been very good when it was sort of the set piece battle where there was so much opposition that I had to figure out how to break it. But the moment the game flipped and said, okay, the initiative is now yours and it's completely up to you to dictate what the shape of the rest of the scenario will be. I folded. Uh, hmm. I, I got really indecisive. Uh, I started playing badly and it was just a, like, even at the time I realized that I was, that I just figured out that I was really good at solving set problems, hmm. but I was really bad at dealing with the freedom of long-term decision-making. Huh? Sure. And, uh, that's something that I've sort of always kept in the back of my mind. As as something that uh that that I have to watch for, so that was a that was a weird thing, but it was it was it was definitely a a, a genuine realization uh, that that games gave me. As far as as far as the crutch of of gaming's escapism, um, I always return to I don't know I can't even say like my lost my lost year with World of Warcraft, because <laughs> um, the yeah that was that was like a long like lost weekend as it were. Sure. Uh, but at the same time, like, yeah, it was it was a crutch. But of the various crutches I was using at that point, it was by far the healthiest. Sure, sure. Uh, so yeah. you know, it was you know, the, I spent I spent one year playing probably too much of a game. Uh, that was probably it. I I do think, and I think this tied into some of our our lack of our 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 uneasiness with the the way the witness was going about teaching things. Yeah. This sense that overall we could have spent some of this time developing skills and passions, maybe even careers, that would be a little more fulfilling than our day-to-day is right now. I think that's mm-hmm. that's kind of like that's kind of how I look at this sometimes, right? Where like, you know, I probably in in general, I probably could have grown more as a person and become a more like disciplined and successful person. If I hadn't had quite such an such easy access to false or meaningless accomplishment. The next letter comes from Ben in Manchester. It says, Hey Idle Weekend. With the ever-expanding choice of media, with roughly 200 films, shows, games, and books coming out every day, I find myself getting hung up on what I should be doing with my time. I also run into the issue of what media is worthy of my time. Am I completing? Uh, am I completely wasting my time watching Fast and Furious when Citizen Kane is there? Should I be playing more itch itchio games? Itchio, yay! Uh, Over sinking time into virtual cocaine, Diablo three. My interests spread across pretty much every medium, and I always feel behind. Do you guys ever encounter this, especially as people whose jobs it is to keep up on things? Anyway, back to deciding whether I should watch The Expanse or finish finish up Angel. Uh, this is something I felt incredibly acutely a few years ago, but I actually don't feel this uh, as much anymore. 
Um, and I, I think it actually, for me, weirdly comes down to multitasking. I've gotten really good at sort of doing two or three things at once. Uh, I like to, for example, work out while I listen to podcasts and maybe also watch uh, fights like on Fight Pass. I'll watch, you know, UFC fights or something while listening to something else while doing my workout. Uh, I've gotten pretty used to sort of watching one thing while writing or sort of, you know, glancing over at, at footage I need to be uh, editing soon, you know, sort of getting a few things done at once. So that certainly helped me sort of uh, view all the things or experience all the things I need to experience for work or for, you know, something I really, really want to watch while I'm I'm working out, that sort of thing. And another part of me just sort of, um, I had really, really severe fear of missing out a few years ago. And I think I kind of don't anymore because in, in a lot of ways, I feel very satisfied uh, by the things that I'm watching and, you know, reading and listening to and playing. I feel in a lot of ways as if kind of my tastes are accounted for. And maybe part of this is the whole, you know, renaissance of, of uh, you know, more more sort of TV platforms. There are shows that I really love that probably never would have been, um, you know, as well catered to me. There's so many things on Netflix or Amazon streaming or, or whatever else that are maybe more niche, maybe more weird. And I'm loving them. And I'm sort of getting... Uh, I'm getting what I want to watch out of the things that I watch. I'm getting what I want to play, at least largely. Um, and so the sort of paralysis of choice that I once felt, uh, it doesn't hurt me as much, I guess, anymore. Uh, so part of it's luck and part of it's multitasking, I guess. Also, to help you with your final decision, uh, you should watch The Expanse. Angel will always be there. The Expanse is uh, it's pretty awesome, and, and you should totally watch it. <laughs> also, Angel gets a little weird toward the end of its run. Yeah, it does. Um, as, it does. As both as both in Buffy did, uh, whereas the Expanse is uh, still pretty strong, I would say. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I I actually struggle with this all the freaking time. Um, <laughs> uh, ages ago, I was on an episode of of the Gamers with Jobs conference call. Mm. Uh, this would have been like the uh, like December. It was the Christmas Eve podcast in 2014. Oh, nice. Uh, where I was describing <laughs> this exact feeling to Sean Sands and Sean Andrich. And Sean Andrich completely understood where I was coming from. And Sands was like, I have no idea what either of you were going on about. I just I just kind of do what I want at the moment. <laughs> I, I feel like I want to. Uh, and it was this, it's this weird, it was this podcast that I still listen to probably like once every couple months because it's like, I go back and I sort of, ch- it's, it's become like a compass bearing almost. Yeah. Like, okay, <laughs> this is an interesting like alternative way of living uh, that I would like to know more about. Um <laughs> I, I think there, there's a couple things here. One is that it's easy to conflate high art with like worthiness. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, my, my answer is you should like, I actually recommend watching both Citizen Kane and uh, the better fast and furious movies. Totally. Because they're like, like fast and furious is really good at delivering on what it promises, right? It it wants to, it wants to give you a ridiculous fantasy about cars and <laughs> power and sexiness and friendship all yes. at once. And it does. And a lot of like movies try to do that and suck. So why does why does Fast and Furious kind of work that's an interesting question to examine why it's, did I... it's made with love rob that's why i think they're like 
they really truly yes. the people who make that movie or the, that series <laughs> one movie just really love what they're doing and are passionate about it and it shows it's really kind of great i think it's an important point i think it yeah. goes beyond that a lot of stuff that is like you know call it lower or whatever no actually because I, I think you'll, you'll encounter it in, in in sort of higher forms of art as well they're made with a certain disdain for their audience yes. a lot of times yes. we're like oh i i guess this is what you people want or <laughs> i i know that this will work on you and so i will go through the motions and you'll lap it up totally. and i and i was watching tokyo drift the other night and it should awesome. be like that but it's fundamentally not yeah um, they're having genuine fun you know, and that's that's really important sometimes, I think, especially in a goofy action movie. Genuine fun is a really wonderful ingredient. Uh, and yes, also, <laughs> like, you know, good characters can crop up in 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 dumb things. Like, yes, I yes. love there's the scene in, in Tokyo Drift where the, the Japanese guy who teaches, I think he's Japanese American, but he, mm. um, he teaches the, the hero sort of the art of drifting, uh, in this ridiculous, in this ridiculous <laughs> movie. But eventually yeah. the guy asks like, what, what the hell are you doing here in Japan? Like, why are you like living this, this dumb life, uh, working with gangsters and, and doing drift racing. And the guy like gives this really short speech about like, you know how in old westerns, there's you know the the, the bandits eventually like decide they just got to get they they got to get the hell out of town and they got to get to Mexico, and if they yeah. get to Mexico, uh, they'll be safe and they can start over again. Well, Japan is my Mexico, and that's all nice. we ever know about that character. <laughs> but instantly, it is like instantly becomes this like riveting enigma uh, in that in that movie, and I and I think like I love. I love stuff like that, even in cheesy or or silly things. I think I just like shotgunned the Flash uh, season one on awesome. Netflix. Yeah, and by the end, I'd gone from thinking it was just like cheesy popcorn entertainment to by the end, I was like, holy shit! Like Tom Cavanaugh, who sort of plays the mentor figure in that series, is doing legitimately like brilliant work with Thanks. this role. Um. And yeah, I, I think when things are made with love and care and respect for re respect for the craft, I, I think it, it doesn't really matter whether or not it has that sort of imprimatur of like seriousness or, or importance. Yeah. And, and here's the other thing. I find serious stuff. It can be hard to, it can be hard to watch all the time. It's hard to, yes, it's, it's hard to always be like, um, you know, if you're in the mood for opera, you can't always be like firing up the the full ring cycle, right? Sure, <laughs> you sure. can't like man man was not meant to live at that at that pitch. Yeah. Uh and so like, you know, the Americans is coming out uh for a for another season on, on FX. I think that's a brilliant series. It is always a series that I'm able to watch like one episode or two episodes every month because it is just it is emotionally grueling. Sure. Um and there's times you just you just want enjoyable silliness. So I think, you know, quality comes in many forms. That's correct. And we, I will definitely be getting back to that point uh, later on <laughs> in the show as well. All right. Uh, this email comes from Joe. Hey, Danielle and Rob. I was listening to last week's discussion about playing games the right way, and it got me thinking about my own struggle with difficulty selection in games. Dead Space 2 is one of my favorite games of all time, 
but only at the higher difficulty levels where the game's survival horror aspects truly come into play. I also loved The Last of Us, but I don't think I would have liked it as much if I hadn't gone with hard mode from the start. Both games give you a ton of ammo and healing items at the normal difficulty, effectively removing resource management as a gameplay mechanic. I can't place my finger on exactly why I blindly jumped to hard mode in some games, but I'm left crippled with indecision in others. And frankly, it would be great if they could all be like Dark Souls and Bloodborne and simply make the decision for me. Do you think there's a better way for games to go about the difficulty selection, should it be included at all? Part of me thinks that difficulty selection is a cop-out on the part of the developers, but I'd like to hear your thoughts on it. You know, I was thinking about this, and I was thinking about sort of how Resident Evil 4 kind of did this, and games that do sort of adaptive uh, difficulty without sort of showing it to the player, you know, without necessarily uh, giving you the choice. But, you know, if you do poorly, it gets easier. If you do well, it gets harder and sort of helps you adjust to, you know, what is hopefully considered a bit of a, you know, the flow state or sort of the ideal way that the developers uh, intend you to experience something. I think that might be a good, not a catch-all, you know, certainly some games I think are better uh, better suited to letting you choose. I, I really do think that, you know, something like Alien Isolation, frankly, I was very happy to be able to sort of play large sections of that game on easy, again, not because of the alien, but because of the sort of other obstacles in your way that I didn't, I didn't care that much about those other obstacles. That wasn't really the experience I wanted uh, with that game. So I do personally appreciate having the choice, but in terms of, you know, sort of getting at the quote unquote true experience that the developers uh, want you to have, I, I think adaptive difficulty might be a good, a good fix for uh, large portions of that. Yeah, I, I I like getting some guidance from the developers when it comes to uh, yeah. difficulty. Like, my favorite difficulty settings of all time, I think, was the flavor text that appeared on the difficulty settings for uh, Bungie's Myth. Uh, because they, they, like, they're really, they're really descri- descriptive and, like, kind of, the prose is a little purple. Sure. Uh, but, like, on the lowest difficulty setting, they're like, uh, you're, you're, like your, your swords will blunt themselves. <coughs> Um, your, your swords will go blunt, uh, from carving through a shambling, mindless, uh, horde of enemies. But when the last zombie is slain and you stand victorious, you will wonder if maybe this was worth it or something like that. <laughs> That's um, perfect. And then yeah. on the, on the hardest difficulty level, it was like, you will defy the commander. It, you will defy a commander leading an army out of the tombs of a thousand years or something like that. It was this sort of epic (laughs) write-up. But then, also on Heroic, they were basically like, this is the way the game is meant to be played, yo. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Which which is hugely important, I think, because that at least tells me, like, this is what the game is balanced around. This is where the systems we designed uh, are actually sort of functioning in the way we imagined them. What is frustrating is, like... Yeah, perfect example. If you play a game like The Last of Us on a lower difficulty level, uh, it becomes yet another. Uh, it becomes yet another Naughty Dog cutscene fest mm-hmm. in some ways, <laughs> yeah. and a much less interesting game uh, than than The Last of Us actually is. And so that's an example of yeah, you can you can remove those obstacles, but at that point you've kind of removed the game you've designed. Yeah. Uh, and that is something I don't think you should. I don't think you should allow players to do to do that without being upfront with them that they are now at this point sort of losing some of the experience they they signed up for. 
Uh, so yeah, I just I just like a little guidance, a little clarity about like what difficulty means, as opposed to me trying to parse what you know whatever like what does normal actually mean, right? Is it normal, yeah. normal, or is it like you know this is what the game is tuned around? Yeah, that's a very good point. I like that. So our last email, I'm actually going to uh, go right into my weekend projects, and and Rob, feel free to jump in with your weekend projects once we're. Uh, into this section here. Uh, but this is actually a forum post uh, posted from uh, our episode last week. It's from Bjorn on the forums. And Bjorn writes, Danielle, please talk about Lost Girl. The lady, which I, I believe is uh, his partner, is deeply, deeply enamored with that show. And yeah, it is trashy, but it's like the best kind of fun trashy. I haven't watched all of it, but I've probably caught about half of the episodes with her, and it's certainly fun enough to sit down and watch. Trashy urban fantasy is the lady's go-to guilty pleasure, but the more she's gotten into it, the more she has me convinced that it has value in a lot of interesting ways. As a genre, it's one that focuses on women characters, women relationships, and women getting shit done. I'd argue more so across the board than most other genres right now. It also tends to be created by women. Lost Girl's creator is a woman, and the vast majority of the episodes were written by women. A few years ago, I would have had a reaction a lot more like Rob's, but now hearing that reaction, it's disappointing to me that we do not have this genre that's being created by people and creating the kinds of characters we lament not existing in other media, but it's so easily written off. This inspired me, uh, Rob, to tell you about how obsessed I have been with Lost Girl in the last couple of weeks. I know I briefly mentioned it last time, and you were like, "Wow, okay." There were previews that I see during the Magicians. It looks just like well, it's always gross the same preview. exploitation makeout people or whatever. Yeah, it's the same preview runs every week, okay, and it always okay. looks like someone is trying to make Caligula for cable TV, <laughs> uh, and then cross it with. Um, like cruel intentions by way of uh, by way of Stephanie Meyer. Yeah, you know uh, that's not entirely wrong, um, <laughs> but I do think Bjorn here has some good points, and and they are very much worth uh, worth talking about. Now, Lost Girl is completely self indulgent trash. There's no two ways about it. This again, this is a show about a bisexual succubus. Who, you know, to live, she needs to have hot, sexy times with men and women all the time. I think, I'm pretty sure there's never been an episode without a sex scene. Like, it's definitely all over the place. There's a lot of goofy leather Does she and do the whole sexist costumes. thing where people die at the end of the sex? Because that well, seems like Well, when of... she was very, in the very first episode, Rob, oh, she tell learns, me all about this lore. Yeah, it's actually great. <laughs> Okay, in the, in the first episode, she's you know she's twenty nine or twenty eight or whatever, and she's she's sort of a bartender who's been hiding from all the people that she's killed in her life, because uh, she doesn't want to kill people, but she needs to eat, so she's really freaked out by her power, and she's found out by sort of the Fae, which are the the magical people. So in the in the lore of the show, there are dark Fae and light Fae, and they are every kind of mystical mythical creature from. Just about every tradition, uh, you know, Celtic myth, there's Egyptian myth, there's Greek myth, it's just everything. Every god, goddess, nymph, you know, shape-shifting animal, just everything. And every sort of uh, episode is written around, you know, sort of these 
uh, different kinds of people with different kinds of powers and their sort of political structures and all sorts of other kind of goofy stuff. It's actually pretty rich and interesting and fun, especially if you are anything like me and you read about, you know, sort of like the wildest, weirdest Greek myths for fun. I, you know, I went through a really uh, kind of ridiculous phase a couple of years ago where I just got my hands on every myth book I could and just read all these just wacky, ridiculous stories. I mean, they're great. They were, you know, ancient people's, you know, graphic novels, basically. Uh, so much fun. Um, anyway, so it sort of combines this love of mythology with uh, lots of trashy sex and really powerful women characters and a sort of central relationship between the two women, sort of the succubus herself, her name is Bo, and her best friend Kenzie, who she does not have sex with, but they live together and they have this just wonderful, wonderful, odd couple kind of relationship that is loving and wonderful and sort of the fact that this show is about women's friendships makes me, it just absolutely warms my little heart. And it is also very much about... Um, you know, it shows lesbian relationships in a really healthy and sort of good and positive light, which is not something you see often. So Bo is actually bi. There are very, very few um, sort of pieces of media that show bisexual women in a really positive light. It's usually either she's a, you know, uh, a woman of loose morals, let's put it that way, or just somebody who really likes men but kisses girls for fun, that kind of thing. And this show completely does away with that. She has real, genuine, lasting relationships with women. Like, they are girlfriends. They love each other. They have hot sex, and it's awesome. And they also talk about their feelings and, you know, go to the grocery store and do normal, healthy things. Um, there are a few pieces that I've read about uh, sort of this show uh, in terms of that, in terms of just how rare it is to actually see, you know, queer women's relationships be both front and center and sort of not just for, you know, the male gaze kind of thing. Like, yes, definitely there's trashy sex all the time. But, you know, the male gaze is not, you know, eating pizza and drinking beer and talking about your crushes from first grade, things like that. You know, it's very, very much true to the kind of, uh, you know, showing a loving relationship instead of just, oh, the hot girls are kissing again. Um, it's it's awesome without ever being very serious. You know, as we were talking about earlier, you know, sort of quality, quality comes in many forms. Well, sometimes it comes in a very trashy form where, you know, people are wearing cheap costumes and they're supposed to be, you know, Egyptian shapeshifters and they're having a party and there's a dance off and um, they go home and they kiss. It's uh it's wonderful, and I love it. <laughs> All right. So, Rob, that's what I've been watching. What have you been into uh, going into this weekend? Oh, not not all that much. Um, I actually want to talk about something that your discussion of Lost Girl just brought to mind. Yes. Uh, a book Please series do. that I don't think was actually all that great uh, by the time I finished it. Mm -hmm. um, but have you ever heard of the Joe Pitt series uh, I've by Charlie heard of Houston? It. I've heard of it, but I've not read it or anything. It's this, like, darkly comic vampire noir okay. uh, set in, like, modern New York, although really it's kind of the New York of, like, the 2000s or maybe even the 90s. Sure. Um, but the funny thing about, about this series, <laughs> uh, which the reason, that, the reason I eventually soured on the series is that eventually I think it, it sort of developed nastiness and a sadism toward its characters mm. that, that I okay. found really off-putting. Um, 
but its vision of New York is as the city sort of divided up among vampire clans uh, who all basically trace their roots back to different social movements of the 60s and 70s. Oh, man. Okay, that sounds cool. <laughs> yeah, and it's, it's, so the, it's this entire book about, like, it's, it's this entire series sort of about the internecine wars of, like, radical liberalism and the identity politics uh, wow. of it. And so, uh, like, the, the sort of the uber bad guys are sort of the, um, like, old school vampires who've been around in a clan for, like, uh, hundreds, thousands of years. Uh, you know, they've got all the, the high-priced real estate in Manhattan, uh, they've got access to blood bank and blood banks, and like course. sort of vampire capital, uh, as it yeah. were. And Joe Pitt is sort of this um, random, like he's sort of a guy who's gone his own way and has rejected all the vampire clans. And nobody's really allowed to be neutral in this world, but everyone finds it useful to deal with Joe Pitt sort of as a as sort of a vampire private detective. Oh, but it's okay. This, I'm really sold on this already, actually. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's pretty good for a long time, and I would say it even ends on a strong note. It just, it, it, it just at 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 times gets, I think, a little too nasty. But like, sure, there's this, sure. there's this group of of vampires called the Coalition that are that are um, not. I'm sorry, not the Coalition, um, but uh, the Society. I think is sure. what they were called, and sure. <laughs> they they are. <laughs> They are basically like run by this by this like total like liberal hippie who has crafted this coalition out of uh gay vampires, um anarchists, uh but like it, 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 he's basically like your hippie commune vampire leader in this world and he like he goes to he approaches every problem uh like he's trying to lead a meeting of like LGBT <laughs> activists in like Perfect. 1973. Like <laughs> oh, and, and time has stopped for this guy. Yeah. Um and so like every time he appears it's kind of hilarious and sort of the tensions building as like um sort of the 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 queer women of the group are starting to feel their struggle is diverging sure. from mainstream <laughs> the mainstream vampire movement. Uh it's 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 a really entertaining series. Um and so, like your discussion, of Lost Girl just brought it to mind because it's a, it's it's a weird and 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 fun way of sort of looking at um, sort of the detritus of yeah. uh, the social change of the '60s and '70s uh, through the lens of this vampire world, where you know because nobody dies, nobody ages, these fights can theoretically go on forever. Um, and it's it's an entertaining series. Uh, I would I, I I would recommend it to you to sort of look into uh, and then bail out when it's getting a little too mean spirited. Okay. Yeah, that sounds. Yeah, that sounds like it definitely has my number actually. So <laughs> I will be certainly looking that up soon. Thank you for that, Rob. I appreciate it. My and pleasure. thank you for not uh, yucking my yum as it's uh, as it were <laughs> with Lost Girl. <laughs> I will. <laughs> I look. I, I am interested in it now, but I'm still also like the those trailers are so off putting. Is the problem? Yeah. I think, and, and I think that maybe is, is the core problem. Is that all I see from the marketing standpoint is the the trashy parts. Yeah, here's girls yeah. making out. Yeah, yeah, and, which I totally understand being off putting, especially if 
you know, uh, I mean, it is certainly there are lots of elements of trash in it. You know, I'm not I would yeah. never deny that. But but yeah, there is more there and, and there is. Uh, quite a bit to celebrate there. Yeah, I mean, um, I have I have never sucks. been talking. I'm I'm watching Billions on Showtime right now, which is completely <laughs> vapid. Uh, we'll talk about that some some other day. Yeah, that sounds really good. Maybe next week. Uh, so with that, I think it's time for us to head out and enjoy our weekends. This episode of Idle Weekend was produced by Michael Hermes and is hosted on the Idle Thumbs Network. You can learn more about the show at idleweekend.net and send us questions for our weekend correspondence at questions at idleweekend.net. To keep up with the latest from us, follow us on Twitter at Idle Weekend. And folks, thank you so, so much for listening to the show. If you are enjoying it, please do rate it on iTunes. Give us a good old rating. And also, certainly, please do tell friends, family, relatives, whoever you think might enjoy the show. It helps us out so much, and we really do appreciate it so, so much. For Rob Zachney, this is Danielle Riendo, wishing you the finest of Idle Weekends. Idle Weekends.